weakened by the flesh, literally, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, again literal, to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in, literally, the flesh. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. A couple of years ago, Karen and I were in Israel, and we went with uh, the tour group that we were with up to visit Temple Mount in Jerusalem, where Jesus once taught and worshipped. On the day before that, in the evening, the tour guide explained to us that we would, when we went up there, we'd be going through a metal detector before we could enter, and he warned us not to wear shorts because the guards, Muslim guys, at the checkpoint wouldn't let us through if we were wearing shorts. Um, My wife wore capris that day. Now, you guys who are like, what is a capri? They're neither long pants nor are they shorts. They're somewhere in between. Come down to the calf. So when I realized that morning that she was wearing capris, I said, "Why, why did you wear those? sort of in an accusational tone. What were you thinking? Why did you wear those? You know what he said about shorts. And she, being the practical person she is, said, these aren't shorts. But I wasn't sure whether those Arab guards at Temple Mount would agree with her. Um, Some Muslim women are ashamed to even let their ankles show, and I could see her ankles, you know, and so I didn't know if we were going to get in or not. Well, we got in line, got up to the on the way to the metal detector, and I was keeping my eyes on those guards on the other side who were inspecting the tourists, and I had a bad feeling about it. See, I'm afraid they're not going to let Karen in, which means that she and I would be separated from our group, and we wouldn't know how to find them again, so I'm just going through this in my head, and I'm preparing for the worst. Somewhere ahead of us in line were two guys, I think they were Americans, I'm not sure, who were wearing shorts. Not capris, but shorts. And when they got to the front of the line, one of the young guards started speaking very loudly and excitedly. And I'm not sure what he was saying, whether he was speaking in Arabic or Hebrew or even English. I couldn't tell what he was saying. But I understood what he meant. You can't come in here. You're wearing shorts. You're rejected. And then a couple of other guards joined him, and soon everyone was talking excitedly, and we slipped right in. Now, maybe Karen was right all along, and my fears were unfounded. You know, probably. At the very least, they were unrealized. We weren't turned away. We weren't condemned. But it's a terrible feeling to be going into something in which you're pretty sure you're going to be rejected. You know the requirements, and you know you don't meet them. Millions of people feel that way about God. People in every culture, in every religion around the world, they know they're in trouble. Millions more don't know. They don't know whether they're in trouble or not, whether they'll be rejected or not. Like me in Jerusalem, they're hoping just to slip in when God's not looking. Even many professing Christians feel that way. I've heard people, people who claim to believe in Jesus, and who I suppose do believe in Jesus, say things like, I just hope I've done enough to get in. Condemnation hangs over their head like the sword of Damocles. And they don't know whether it's going to fall or not. That's a terrible feeling. How would you like to be rid of it? Once and for all. 
How would you like to have assurance that you will be accepted, that there is no condemnation in your future? You can be condemnation-free. Based on what? Is a person only beyond condemnation if there's no sin left in their lives? Or as Paul put it, as we saw last week, in his members. If you're still struggling with sin, are you still in danger of being condemned? Or is the way to be condemnation-free to jump through all the hoops that some church or denomination set up? You know the hoops, right? Baptism, church membership, weekly or near-weekly attendance, church giving, even on those weeks when you don't attend. Is that what it takes to be condemnation-free, to jump through hoops? But what if there's some hoop that your church doesn't know about? How can you be sure you haven't missed one? Or maybe you're only condemnation-free if you've had certain requisite experiences. Okay, You've been baptized in the Spirit, slain in the Spirit, you've spoken in tongues. Or maybe you're only condemnation-free if you've avoided certain experiences, committing adultery, getting drunk or high, or using racial slurs or whatever. Freedom from condemnation isn't found in any of these things. It's not based on achieving some kind of sinless perfection. If it were, the sword of Damocles would be hanging over all our heads and the horsehair by which it's suspended would be fraying. Being condemnation-free is not based on jumping through the right hoops or having the right experiences or avoiding the wrong ones. Condemnation, and therefore freedom from condemnation, is not based on what you do, but on where you are. Verse 1 There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This has been one of the key themes of the letter to the Romans so far. You can stand alone or you can stand with Christ. You can align yourself with religion or morality or science or some other possible ally, or you can align yourself with Jesus. When God decides whether or not to let you in, and I'm not talking about heaven, but about accepting you into his people and onto his side, his decision will not be based on your looks or your finances or your personal holiness rating. It will not be based on your Bible knowledge, church attendance, devotional rigor, or any other such thing. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no acceptance for those who are not. Now understand, being in Christ is not just saying you're a Christian. It's more than believing in God. Everybody believes in God, just about. Or accepting certain doctrines. Jesus' deity, for example. Or the efficacy of his atoning death. Being in Christ is more like being in the Marines. You're not in the Marines because you have a favorable opinion about them. You're not in the Marines because you know the oath of enlistment and can recite it or sing the Marine Corps anthem or because you work on base. Being in the Marines is not a feeling or an attitude, though it engenders feelings and attitudes. Being a Christian is not a feeling or an attitude either, though it engenders them. Faith in Christ is not an opinion about how his death provides forgiveness. It's not an opinion at all. Your opinions can be theologically spot on, and you can be utterly condemned 
Faith in Christ Jesus is confidence in him as a person, not a religious symbol. It's confidence in his word that what he says is true. In his work that what he's done is sufficient. In his rule that he is both Lord of all the earth and your Lord. That's what Paul's talking about when he says later in this letter, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That verse used to confuse me for a number of reasons. I'll just mention one. Paul says here there are two requirements for salvation. Confessing Jesus is Lord, something you do, and believing God raised him from the dead, something you believe. But why those two things? Why did he choose those two things of all the things he could have chosen? And if some sort of belief is required, why is it belief in the resurrection rather than the belief in Christ's atoning death? I never heard anybody explain that to my satisfaction. So I was confused. But I was coming at that from the wrong direction. Paul is not giving us a performance test, confession, and a doctrinal test, belief in the resurrection. These are not two separate requirements for salvation, but one's two sides of one thing. Faith in Jesus. It's faith in Jesus, the true Lord of all the earth and of you. It's not just faith in the one who died, but faith in the one who lives and reigns forever. You believe he is the living, since God raised him from the dead, Lord of all the earth and of you, since you confessed him Lord. You've come over to his side because you believe in him. So you're in Christ. Do you have that kind of confidence in Jesus? If you do, there's no condemnation for you. If you don't, would you mind if I ask why? Is it because you need more proof? That's a very valid thing. Is it because... You know your life would change, and that makes you nervous. Is it because you've considered Christ's claims, and you've rejected them? Or is it just that you've been putting off? If it's the latter, then put it off no longer and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes, the entire Christian faith is presented as if it exists for this purpose to prevent individuals from being condemned. That's it. That's the whole thing. That's what it's all about. And of course, escaping condemnation is important. To be free of it forever is a huge relief. But to frame the Christian life in those terms is like saying the reason to go to Cedar Point is the free parking. Or the reason to get married is to have someone to cook for. God's end goal was not to get us out of condemnation. That's very clear in this passage. It's just that is a step in the process. His end goal is to get us into a with God and for God life. Are you there? A meaningful, loving, richly satisfying, personally transforming, truly human life, which Adam's sin and ours took away. People look for that kind of life in lots of places. Uh, relationships and relationships with the opposite sex or the same sex, in career advancement and product consumption and leisure and in play, but they never find it in those places. And they never will find it apart from God. 
the absence of condemnation is just one side of the coin. The other side is the presence of God's spirit. A more apt analogy might be the absence of condemnation is the outside of the cup. But the spirit-rich life is the invigorating wine on the inside. Paul uses a variety of words in chapter 8 to describe that spirit-rich life. And we're going to see these over the next few weeks. It is freeing, life-fulfilling, life-giving, peaceful, pleasing. It's a directed life, by which I mean it's going somewhere. It has a purpose. It's a life where fear becomes less and less a factor, and hope overflows more and more. That's the life God intends for you, that Christ died to make possible. Are you, at least in some measure, experiencing that life? Do you want it? It comes from the spirit of life. God is doing much more than providing people a way to escape condemnation. No condemnation is the starting point. It's not the destination. When we visited our son Brian in California a few years ago, we spent some time in Yosemite and did day hikes in different parts of the park. So we stayed off, out of the park, but we would drive into the park, and then we'd do day hikes. One day we drove in and left the car near the trailhead to Vernal Falls, which if you've been there, is a beautiful place and a, a, a strenuous hike to the top. We could have just stayed down in the parking lot and avoided the strenuous hike because it was nice there too. We could have got out our picnic basket and made a day of it. But that was just the starting point on the way to the falls. Similarly, no condemnation is the starting point on the way to the life God intends for us, a life in the spirit. Why stay in the parking lot? And yet people do. In verse 4, Paul explains not what God did through Christ, but why he did it in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. That's why Christ came. That's why he died. God intended us to be the vanguard of a new humanity, the people in whom his original purpose, the righteous requirement, singular in Greek, the NIV translates it plural, but it's not, the righteous requirement of the law, which is fulfilled through the new way of the Spirit. Now, when you come to this verse, someone might say, well, has Paul changed his mind then, and he's backed away from what he previously said, so that now Christians are expected to comply with all the law's requirements? So maybe you need to review what he has said. He has said, we have been released from law. That's chapter 7, verse 6. You died to law, chapter 7, verse 4. You are not under law, chapter 6, verse 14. Over in Galatians, he says, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. Uh, In chapter 3, verse 28, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. So how can he now talk about the law's righteous requirements being met in us? Is this a bait and switch? Paul took away the law with one hand and now he's slipping it back in with the other? Or has he really changed his mind about it? The answer is neither. 
Paul is not reintroducing the law, nor has he changed his mind. When he speaks of the righteous requirement of the law being fully met in us, better fulfilled in us, he's not talking about the 613 commandments mingled throughout the Old Testament. He's not talking about the commands regarding clothing, for example. Don't make clothing out of flax and out of linen and wool or about lighting the menorah, or about removing unclean people from the camp. The righteous requirement, remember singular, the NIV is misleading here, of the law is not about keeping Passover or the Feast of Pentecost. It's not about kosher food regulations or various Sabbath observances. Those are not the righteous requirement of the law that Paul has in mind. Now, remember back to that important passage in chapter 2. I told you this was important when we looked at it back in chapter 2. When Paul wrote, when the Gentiles, and I believe he had Gentile believers in Jesus in mind, when the Gentiles do by nature the things required by the law, he says they become a law to themselves. In that passage, he was clearly not talking about Passover or kosher or Sabbath or purity laws. The Gentiles weren't doing any of those things because they didn't know anything about them. In that passage, he says they don't know them. And yet some of those Gentiles, according to Paul, were keeping the righteous requirement of the law. When he talks about the righteous requirement of the law, he's not talking about the things that make a person Jewish, the festivals and kosher laws and Sabbaths, but about the things that make a person Christ-like. That has been God's plan ever since he placed Adam in the garden. It's not that being Jewish is bad. Paul's going to talk about how good it is when he gets to the next chapter. But through Jesus, God has brought into being a non-ethnic people of God. That's one of the major teachings of the New Testament. And is foretold in the Old Testament. You no longer need to be Jewish to belong to God's people. But Jewish or not, here's the thing. The righteous requirement will not be fulfilled in us, literal translation, because we observe the law, but because we are led by the Spirit. When we get to chapter 10, Paul will say that Christ is the end of the law. It doesn't mean that Christ abolished the law. It means that Christ is the end. That is, the end God had in mind from the very beginning, the goal, the purpose of the law. And here we learn in this verse that we are also the end of the law. The righteous requirement is fulfilled in us, and the next phrase is all important, who do not live according to flesh, but according to spirit. It's a paradox. The law will never find its fulfillment in people who try to find their fulfillment in it. It's only fulfilled in people who find their fulfillment in living according to the Spirit. The law is fulfilled every time a person's life, like Jesus's, is free, life-giving, peaceful, pleasing to God, and overflowing with hope. All those things we're going to see in chapter 8. In other words, a person who is led by the Spirit into that life of love, which Paul will say in chapter 13, is the fulfillment of the law. 
As John Stott put it, the only people in whom the law's righteous requirements are fulfilled are those who live not according to flesh, but according to spirit. That is, those who follow the promptings and surrender to the control of the spirit. So the all-important question is, how do I do that? How do I follow the promptings and surrender to the control of the Spirit? And the answer to that question will emerge over the next few weeks as we get a grasp on what Paul is saying in Romans 8. So you've got to come back. You know. How many of you are old enough to know what the perils of Pauline were? Anybody know the perils of Pauline? Wow, you're just a kid. Really? You're kidding. The perils of Pauline? So you go to the movie theater, and the movie theater, there would be these little shorts that featured Pauline. And every short had Pauline in some terrible problem. She's the girl who got tied to the railroad tracks, remember, and the train is coming, about to run her over, and before it got there, the short would end. And you'd have to come back next time to see what happened to Pauline. So I'm planning my whole preaching schedule based on the theology of the, parable, the perils of Pauline. And you've got to come back next week and the week after that when we talk about what it means to follow the promptings and surrender to the control of the Spirit. All right, let's stop there. Let's pray. Lord, teach us this. It's so important. We want to know it. We want to live in your presence and trust your presence in us by your spirit. And we recognize that this is possible, this life, only because of the one who has saved us, the one who has freed us from condemnation, Jesus, our King. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.